not going to take too long. You know, we, we enjoyed some Christmas carols. I'm going to preach, and I hope I don't take too long. I don't plan on taking too long. So forgive me if we have different versions of what too long is. But that being said, um, let me give you just a, a, a brief little synopsis, because this is the, am I right? Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. This is the last Sunday in 2021. Am I right? Okay, good. Just making sure. Making sure. Um, this is the last Sunday, and I know in the new year we get so excited about uh, you know, as a kid growing up, no matter what, whether it be a new sermon series or, uh, or a new initiative you know, that you want to do in the new year, and we'll still get into all of that, but we're not quite done with Acts yet. Today we're in chapter 16, and I'm going to really uh, kind of shotgun through this chapter. I don't want you to think that you're not going to get good substance, but here's what you've probably experienced so far uh, throughout the book of Acts. I have to pause really quick, and for those of you that have been praying for me, thank you. I'm COVID-free, so I missed you all. I was just so caught up in the excitement. I was like, oh, wait, this is my first Sunday back and since COVID. Thank you for your prayers. To those of you that, ha- that just reached out, making sure me and my wife were okay over the week, thank you. For those that brought soup and provisions, thank you. That was so needed. So thank you. I'm sorry. That was a total tangent. I just I forgot because I was so excited and caught up being back in church. Um, I really am. I'm, I'm giddy about it. Um, so back to Acts, we've been going through it and I'm, I'm so thankful for everybody that's been tracking along. We've had two sermon series now going through the book of Acts and to be honest, we're still only two thirds done. And I know not, well, my wife knows better and I listen to her to know when to not wear out our welcome. And I know a lot of you are okay with us and you're loving the book of Acts, but here's where I want to just give you a little bit of instruction and I don't want to turn you off to Acts, but here's what you need to know. If we keep preaching through it chapter by chapter until we get to the end, you've seen some repetition, and like I've said, that's important. But now it's, it's going to wear out its welcome, not because there's not substance and you don't need it. I want to encourage you, if you haven't finished reading the book of Acts, keep reading through it. Finish it. The repetition is important, but from a preaching perspective and you coming and hearing a message of application and what can I put into practice— you're going to keep hearing the same thing week after week after week. It's important for you to read the story and see the repetition, but to hear the same application week after week after week, you're, going to, you're probably already at your wit's end with it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take three more weeks in the book of Acts, which means i got to be really good at figuring out how to pick the pertinent, important focal points for the next three weeks. Today doesn't count, so we have three weeks after today, so technically today would be four more weeks in the book of Acts, and then we're going to move on. But I, I wanted to give you that picture so that you can kind of know, hey, when is this movie over? Because uh, I got things to do, and you want to hear new things, and I get that. Um, so this week, we're going to be in uh, chapter 16, um, and I, like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shotgun through it. I'm going to spend a, a good little portion on the first about 10, 15 verses, and then I'm going to shotgun through the rest of it. And I, I, it's still substantive and important. I don't want you to think it's unimportant just because I, I spend a little bit more time on one section than the other. And then this is really what I'm going to get into in a little bit is Paul's second missionary journey. For those of you that don't know, in the book of Acts, Paul goes on three missionary journeys. Really the first missionary, Pastor Chase stepping in and filling in, did an incredible job the past few weeks. Yeah, incredible job. And he started off in, he didn't start off, but he introduced us and showed in a map the first missionary journey and kind of explained that. And last week, as he was finishing up chapter 15, 
got a little bit into reading about Paul's second missionary journey, which is really where we're going to pick up and kind of just finish, even though I'm not going to go through the rest of the chapters that encapsulate this whole second missionary journey. And the next week, we're going to go into a third missionary journey, and then finally, we're going to finish with Paul's farewell, because he was going to be imprisoned and put to death for his faith. So, sad ending, uh, spoiler alert, uh, but it's still it's still God's word and fruitful and has so much life to give us. So that's kind of just a bit the synopsis, a look ahead of what you have coming for the next few weeks before we move into something new in the new year. Um, but that being said, let me pray over God's word today. I need it. I haven't preached in two weeks, so you're in for a ride. Um, but let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for your birth. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you that we have hope, even when all hope seems lost. And Jesus, I thank you, thank you, thank you for that hope. Thank you for the life that you live, so perfect and sinless, so sacrificial from the start, Lord, setting aside your divinity and taking on humanity. Thank you for all of that that supplies us with the hope that we need. Father, I praise you, and I thank you that in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Audrey, I'm sorry to bother you. I got like cotton mouth like crazy. I'm so dry. I got a bottle of water on my chair. If you wouldn't mind. Thank you. Um, Acts chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Thank you. We're going to start in the first five verses. Let me read it for you and get right into it. And then we're going to talk about it. It says this. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. Where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother, pay attention to this, was Jewish and a believer, <coughs> but whose father was Greek. It's important. Verse 2, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Also important. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so here's what he does. He circumcised him. Merry Christmas, Timothy. Uh, <laughs> because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. That verse is really important. I'm going to just read it for you one more time, then we'll finish. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews who lived in the area who he was going to have an encounter with. For they all knew that his, Timothy's father, was a Greek, a non-Jew. Verse 4. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decision reached by the apostles. That was last week. I'll highlight that and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. All right, so here's what's happening here in the scripture. Last week in chapter 15, Pastor Chase really helped us understand the importance of, of what was going on with these Pharisee converts to Christianity who believed in Jesus but really wanted to hold on to their, their mosaic law practices, their principles. And one of the big things was circumcision. No surprise. That was a big part of the Jewish faith. It was practiced from the start of Judaism with Father Abraham. And it was strictly adhered to. And Pharisees, Jews, leaders of the Jewish faith, now converts, desperately, desperately want to still hold on to those principles. We know that. Circumcision was a big one. And here's what they do. They start going around and they still have influence and they're telling everybody, Chapter 15, verse 1, unless you're circumcised. Greeks who didn't practice those traditions and those customs, but who also come to the Christian faith, 
These Pharisees who are converts say, unless you're circumcised, you are not going to go into heaven. You ever heard that before in your life? It might not be about circumcision, but it might be about something else. Unless you, you ain't getting into heaven. And you feel that weight, and you feel heavy, and you think, man, I, I don't try it. And you do it, and you fail, and you can, and then you feel horrible, and then get mad at God, get mad at the church, and, and all that. Well, that's what we have going on here, and it's a problem. And Paul and Barnabas are some of the first responders to this in chapter 15. And it says in chapter 15 that they, they debated vigorously fiercely they were like hold up you guys don't know what you're talking about we've been going around and jews and gentiles alike have been coming to the faith especially gentiles and you don't get that christ fulfilled this all and they debated fiercely they were again like ground zero dealing with this issue they're some of the first responders to it and then the rest of the jerusalem council gets in the the leaders of the church who are jewish as well and they sink their claws into it and, and grapple with it and say, okay, let's figure out how to address this. And they agreed, and, and Peter gets in on the matter. And for those of you, by the way, it's a little side note, especially recovering Catholics. I love all of you. Um, Peter is not, 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 and was in no way even a part of the, the leadership of the head of the church. If you read through Acts, and I haven't made note of it, but it's kind of important because in Catholicism, the Pope is made authoritative over the Bible. And that's a big issue doctrinally because that's a human being. And what the Pope decides, even if it contradicts Scripture, that is authority. And it's based on the false interpretation of Scripture that when Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, upon you, this rock, I will build this church, he was the first Pope. He was the leader of the church. Peter wasn't. If you look at this, Peter answers to the half-brother of Jesus many a time, James, who was really the leader of the church. So if anybody was the pope, it was James and, and a council of elders that in chapter 15 helped really address this doctrinal issue amongst the universal church that was being spread. So that's just a fun little side note. Peter, he, he was kind of like Paul. He was an apostle, a big authority figure. He was not one of the head district leaders, if you want to call it that, network leaders of the church. He wasn't. He wasn't. He was just a missionary out doing the work, spreading the gospel like Paul was. Anyway, in this situation, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and the leaders of the church, they come in. They share their stories and their experience about the, how the Holy Spirit's been filling people without discrimination. The gospel is going forth. Stop putting a yoke of slavery on people by saying, Hey, unless you're circumcised, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. Don't, don't put a yoke of slavery. Peter gets up and says that we ourselves and our ancestors could never keep. So why would we put others under this yoke of slavery? We can't have a double standard. And, and they're addressing this issue. But what I really want to focus on is, again, Paul. He is, he is vehemently against this idea of circumcision is a means to salvation. Let me show you in some of... Paul's other writings in the New Testament, how seriously he was against this false doctrine of salvation through circumcision. Uh, let's jump to Galatians chapter 5, written by Paul, verses 2 through 4. <coughs> Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Paul says this concerning circumcision. Mark my words, exclamation point. 
Pay attention. Listen to me to what I'm about to say. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value. He will have no worth, no weight, no standing in your life. It'll be meaningless. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law, similarly noted, come Christ. You have fallen away from grace. These are weighty words because Paul is saying, if you let yourself be circumcised, in other words, what he's saying is he's, he's not saying it out of, okay, it's custom and tradition. We'll get to that. He's just saying if it's the means to salvation. In other words, what the Pharisees were teaching, con- converted Pharisees in 15.1, unless you're circumcised, you will not be saved. Like if, if, if you really believe that, why are you even bothering with Jesus? Because he's the means to salvation, but you're making circumcision a, a, a practice, a tradition, a principle, a practice. But he goes, but let me also be clear. That's a part of the law. And the law is, to help us understand it clearly, gives us the understanding of the way to Christ, the way to God. You need to understand the law. I've heard the law described in a great metaphor in this way. The law, say you get sick in your body and you need to know what that sickness is, where the sickness is coming from. You need a doctor to diagnose it. The law isn't the cure. The law is the x-ray or the MRI that you receive and it gives you a full picture of what's out of place in my life and what do I need to address. The problem throughout all of history leading up to Jesus was that The law also became the cure. It was never intended to be the cure. It was the awareness, the realization of, man, I got a lot of diseases and problems and and metaphorically issues that I need something, somehow, some way to address. And Jesus was the answer to those problems. So Paul is saying circumcision is important, but Jesus fulfilled it. So now at this point in the game, Why are you going around saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but you need the law? So we all understand this. We've read lots of portions like this. But the point that I want to get across after reading Galatians is, man, Paul is so against this ideology that has kind of worked its way into the Christian faith early on. And if you read his letters, he talks about it again. Almost every letter that Paul writes, he deals with this particular issue. But I know circumcision, we don't deal with that literally a lot. It's more of a medical thing now and, and all that. But it, its application still applies to the idea of I want to talk about principles and, and values, things that we hold dear that we think helps us and we feel helps us grow closer to God. And you, you, can, you can fill in the blank today with whatever that principle is, that value is. Whether it be a way that you read your Bible, the way you have devotions, the way that you interact with people in the workplace, that all has to do with, yeah, I'm glorifying God in the manner in which I do this. The way that I celebrate Christmas, the way that I fill in the blank, it's a value, it's a principle. And for the most part, it's probably a good thing that I don't want you, whatever it is today, to walk away feeling ashamed of. Because as we're going to see Paul doesn't want people who still value circumcision to feel ashamed of that. 
his issue, again, is when it's the means to salvation. Circumcision's not bad. Take it or leave it. Ultimately, Paul's saying, really has no bearing other than how it helps you in your relationship with God. But ultimately, it's not the way to salvation. All right, we get that. But Paul is vehemently and adamantly speaking against this false doctrine. But we just read that in spite of all of that and all of the work he goes to and will continue to go to through in the future and combating this false doctrine, he meets a young man of well-renown who's well-known in his city. And he looks at him and he, he, for those of you who go back to chapter 15, he just lost a young ward, John Mark, who he and Barnabas had such a sharp dispute about whether or not we should bring John Mark. He came with them on the first missionary journey, but midway through, for whatever reason, wasn't for this whole Gentile ministry. He was a Jew and used to it, a young man, got homesick, missed mommy, whatever. And midway through the journey, he's like, I'm out. And he sailed all the way back to Jerusalem and goes home to mommy probably quite literally. Paul had a major issue with that. Barnabas didn't, and they both agree initially, Paul and Barnabas, hey, let's go back and encourage the churches that we saw and planted on the first missionary journey. Barnabas, great idea, Paul. Let me go get John Mark. Ah, no. They both had the same mission, but the methodology about how they wanted to accomplish it, that's where they disagreed. You ever had that before? You ever in life, whether in work or in Christian faith, like you can both agree on we need to get to point B. But how we get there, we might disagree. You know, there's a lot of things that we can say about that. That's not what I'm here to talk about today. Was it right that they disagreed? Should they have worked out their differences? Should John Mark have gone with them or not? I don't know. A lot of people say, yes, it was God's plan, and you have the Barnabas way, which is the encourager, and the Paul way, which is like, no, we got to get it done. I don't know that I agree with that. Honestly, I don't know. I don't think Luke is trying to give us a a manual on the one-on-ones of leadership, whether you're that encouraging leader. I don't think that's the case, honestly. Honestly, I bet Paul at some point regretted it. But what we do know in chapter 16, immediately that Paul's like, all right, but I'm still going. And he has Silas with him, and he's going to go back. And he comes across this young man who is well-known and of good rapport in the community. Whose, fa- whose mother is Jewish, but a convert to Christianity, but whose father is a Greek. And he goes, I want to bring this guy with me, because I think he has a lot to give to the kingdom of God. And, and I'm going to kind of get to it at the end of this portion, but what is awesome here is that we see Paul is very, very conscientious of passing the baton. Paul knows He's not old at this point by any means, but he knows I've got to be raising up the next generation because if this dies with me and I haven't trained someone up to carry on the work, man, I'm not doing what I'm not being a disciple maker. So that is a theme that we see whether Paul or Barnabas was right. They both at one point was like John Mark. Now, Paul didn't say, I'm never bringing a young man with me again. He said, no, not John Mark. I'm going to bring Timothy. And you know what? He was willing to roll the dice on him, not because of his rapport, but because he had a he had a credibility problem. Again, not because of his integrity, but because of his ethnicity, unfortunately. And we know Paul's practice was to always go to the Jews first, even though he was renowned and known as the man who brought the gospel to the Gentiles because the Jews always rejected him. But Paul always had a practice, the city he would go to, to bring the gospel, he'd go to the synagogue first on the Sabbath. 
It would reject him most of the time, and he would go on. So he takes Timothy. He says, Timothy, I want you to come with me. I want you to come under my wing. I want to show you what God has called me, and I want us to learn together. And we know later on, Timothy becomes a pastor in the church of Ephesus where they will eventually go in this missionary's journey, bringing the gospel, plant a church, and Timothy will go back one day and pastor that church. Here's the deal, Timothy. Come with me. But you, you know all the issues with that circumcision stuff. You know I'm really against it, right? And for, for uh, the reasons of salvation, right? Um, kind of hard for me to say, Tim, but uh, you need to be circumcised. Paul, Paul, and, and, and mind you, a part of this journey, the second missionary journey that they're about to go on, that we read, was that they were carrying this doctrine that the church in Jerusalem had made. It was a letter addressing the problem of circumcision and blood and animals and sexual morality. The church, in dealing with the circumcision issue, dealt with it and a few other things that their missionaries would carry out and say, hey, listen, there's some false teachings going around. We don't want you to come under a yoke of slavery and be confused and worry about your faith. Here, here's just a good rule of thumb. Don't do this, this, and this. They are important. But these things that people are saying, don't worry about them. It's salvation through Jesus alone. They were, they were setting things straight. Paul was one of the carriers of this letter to go back and to make sure that everybody in these new churches were of sound mind and spirit. And so circumcision is one of those things. And he's saying you don't need to be circumcised to, salva to have salvation. But Timothy, it would be good for you to be circumcised. How does that not seem like Paul is talking out of both sides of his mouth? How does that not seem like Paul is being a hypocritical leader? He's not. He's not compromising his integrity and his values. What Paul is doing is recognizing that so long as it doesn't have to do with circumcision leading to salvation, that false doctrine, as much as I'm against circumcision, I'm willing to set aside my principles if it means the gospel will go forth unhindered. Everybody knows Paul's against this. And he turns around and does something, unfortunately for Timothy, Timothy's really got the short end of the stick, does something huge. He swallows his pride. He could have in this moment been thinking, you know what? I, I got a reputation at stake here. And what is it going to look like if I bend over and, and take a knee and go to the whims of everybody else and now circumcise my young ward just so that he can seem culturally acceptable? It's going to look like I'm a sellout. He could have had that mindset. He in fact, he says, while I'm passionate and I know what the gospel says and I will never shirk from it, I also know that if people do get circumcised for other reasons, because it makes them feel closer to God, not the way to God, but it just makes them feel closer to God, the tradition, that's not a sin. It is in the Bible. That's not a sin. So I'm not going to hold that over people's heads. And I'm not going to bring my young ward with me and say, hey, you see this half Jew and this half Greek? He didn't need to be circumcised. You all better get with the program. Like, no, we've got, we've got a mission, and we've got to share the gospel. So if it means we need to sacrifice our pride and go through a little bit of pain, let's be willing to do that. So here's the point, the first point that I want to make to you based on all this. Your principles must never supersede your church. And, and again, when I say principles, I want you to think positively. As much as circumcision was an issue here, again, let me be clear, it's not a bad thing. Even religiously, if you want to 
do it today and you've never been and you're a male and you want to be circumcised because it makes you feel closer to God. More power to you, man. Seriously, like, wow, you're brave. More power to you. Um, if you, Esther, I'm sorry, I love to pick on you, but like to wear a head covering in church. Awesome. Great. Do it. But don't go around to every other person in the church and saying, hey, you're not going to really, really get close to God and definitely not go to heaven unless you wear head covering in church. That's worship to him. So, again, it's, it's not wrong if you have a certain practice to a degree, and I'm going to hit that because it's not like anything goes. But if there are things that you like to do, you like to pray out loud or pray quietly, whatever your flavor is, it's okay. It's good. It's a principle, a practice that you like to employ that helps you in your relationship with God. It becomes problematic if that becomes your rule and authority that you dictate for everyone else to follow. And it becomes a problem as a rule and authority. Maybe you don't force it on others, but it hinders you from doing work. And that's what I really want to get to. If your principles, because you're so fiercely, fiercely, fiercely dedicated to them, that you're unwilling to be flexible. When God says, you know what, I know you like to do that, and it's good, but it's not necessary. And in fact, it's a hindrance right now in this season. And I need you to set that aside for a time because I got, I got a message that I need you to preach. And if you do that in this season, you are not going to be effective in the message that you're sharing. That's what's happening here. All right, so when I was in college, I had a quote by Augustine. For those of you who don't know, Augustine of Hippo was one of the early church fathers, gave us a lot of doctrine that we practice today, studied scripture, huge help as a church father. Uh, a quote that I could not find that was from a book of him, but I couldn't find it online, uh, that I'm going to botch and paraphrase, was ultimately this idea. The only thing that a man has or a woman has when they die are their principles, their values. You can argue the semantics of that and say, well, no, my greatest things that I have when I die are my children. Well, if you really think about it, they're a part of what you value because if you value how you raise your kids, that's a value. And the principles that you employed in raising them, it's all about how you lived your life to leave others better off than, than when it started. That's shows what you valued in life. I thought that was powerful, and I wrote that every day as, uh, as a young man in college and thinking, man, when I go to class, when I go to the cafeteria, when I go to the gym, when I go to work, whatever I do, I want to remember that what I value and up maintaining the integrity, not compromising those values, man, that is the greatest legacy I could leave behind. That right there. Until I got to the scriptures. And I realized, you know what, that's true to a degree. It's true if the ultimate value that I have is everything that I do, I want it to bring glory to God. That value. Because all the values are good, they're not bad, but they need to play second fiddle. They need to come secondary to that value. That trumps all. You know? And, and again, you fill in the blank with whatever that looks like. You might have great values, but they ought never to supersede, you know what, God? Whatever you want me to do in this season, in accordance with your will and your word, I'm willing to do it, especially if it means that i got to lay aside, maybe for a season, maybe permanently, because of the word that you want me to share, the word and the power and to whom you want me to share it. Your principles must never supersede your service to the gospel. And this is what Paul wanted to teach Timothy. 
believe this. In order, and here, here's really this, in order, I, I bet Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, listen up. In order for you to be effective as a leader, you're going to have to do things that are uncomfortable. Literally, in this situation, this lends to your credibility. As much as we want to think, you know what, I don't care what other people think about me, it's important. Not that you be famous, not that you be safe, not that you compromise integrity, but there are times that you need to say, you know what, if what I'm doing right now is going to hinder the gospel going forward, even if it's a good practice, and it's hurting my credibility, I, I, I need to do something about it. That was the issue with Timothy. It's unfair when we read it. His father was a Greek. That shouldn't have mattered. We would say that today. It shouldn't matter where you came from, where you grew up. And again, it doesn't in your long-standing faith with God. Don't be ashamed of it. Paul wasn't saying, Timothy, be ashamed. Paul was saying, hey, listen. Don't feel bad about this. Don't be ashamed about this. But understand that if you're going to walk this path, and, and Timothy, he did go on to be a pastor when he was called. It's not everybody is, is called in that sense. But I believe this is applicable Regardless, if you're called to vocational ministry as a Christian, you're going to be called to places, seasons, and people wherein you need to be willing to say, you know what, that doesn't define me, but I know that the people that I'm trying to communicate, that's all that they see. And so if it means I adjust this part of my life all so that they would hear the gospel unhindered, I am not too proud of that. I am willing to lower myself just like Jesus did this Christmas every year that we celebrate. Jesus lowered himself to the most humble state. He set aside his divinity and took upon himself humanity. He put himself in such a lowly state in the setting of the cosmos and divine being. It's like a God would never do that. Angels would never do that. And there is the Son of God himself taking upon humanity. He wasn't proud, but he had a mission. Paul and Timothy had a mission. He said, Timothy, in order for us to accomplish our mission, you're going to have to lower yourself. Remember, it does not define you. You should not be ashamed of being circumcised or uncircumcised. It's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Jesus is the answer. But it's going to help so that every time we walk into a synagogue, the Jews don't immediately say, Eh, his, just because his mommy's a Jew doesn't mean he really is, you know. Oh, he's being circumcised. Okay. Let's shut our mouths and let's listen. You know what's happening here? It's all about being willing to humble yourself, no matter the cost. And that's what it means to be a leader. And, and Paul, in spite of everything he says against circumcision and, and, and everything, let's look at another thing that he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, starting in verse 19, to another church that he's going to, in a missionary journey, plant the church, and it'll grow, and we know became a powerhouse for the supernatural and the gift of the Spirit. Verse 19 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Though I am free, and I belong to no man, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. I'm not beholden to anyone's principles, practices, traditions, or customs. I'm a slave to none of that. But I choose to make myself a slave to everyone as I please. Because that's what comes out of my heart. And that's how I'm going to accomplish it. He goes on. So what have I done? To the Jews, 
I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. Remember, the law is an x-ray. I'm not under that. It shows me. Jesus cleanses me. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, the good news, the preaching, proclaiming the message that I may save some. Paul says, you know, in very brash, very confident, very intellectual, who is had to stand as a man of integrity, a man of principles. If we ever saw one right here, openly confesses, proud as I am of a lot of the things that I had done, no, I am willing to sacrifice all of that to whoever it might be in whatever season I find myself in. I'm not going to just do what I can to help proclaim the gospel to the Jews and get stuck in that. But if I switch and my audience is now Gentile, which it was, and it's back and forth all the time, you know what? I'm going to put on my Gentile hat. And I'm going to speak in a way that they understand and they know and they're willing to receive. And those not having the law, to the weak, to the strong, to the Romans, to the non-Romans, whoever is before me, to the farmer, to the businessman, to the accountant, to the doctor, to the believer, to the unbeliever, Whatever the gospel message is that the Lord has placed in my heart and in my mouth to proclaim through the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to be willing to sacrifice my pride and my comfort and not be afraid that they might be wowed by it. Yeah. So, let me ask you just a question. Are your principles submissive to you or the God who you love with your whole heart? Think about that. Again, I keep stressing this. Think positively when I say principles. I'm not saying sinful, evil acts that you have glorified as good. No, on paper, good things that have helped you build your faith. I'm talking good stuff. Because that's the stuff that we especially don't want to address. It's easy to call out sin. It's not easy to say, I need to change this part of me. I know I've been hurt, and I need to be helpful. But I need to change it to this new thing. Why? Because what God wants me to do in order to better effectively communicate his gospel to that group of people that do not value the same things I do. All right, so are your principles submissive to you or submissive to God? Submission, and I, I'm going to say this phrase, and it might sound a little bit, I don't know, almost heretical, but bear with me. Submission changes depending on season. And I don't mean that you're constantly submitting to God. I'm not contradicting that. You always submit yourself to God, but maybe it looks different over the next step. The way that you submit, what you submit. Because again, there might be a season where you are just rooted in that sin. Like pure, dark, filthy, dirty sin, whatever it is. And that you know, okay, submission in this season is I got to confess some things. I might need to confess to some people. 
And then I definitely, above all else, need to get on my knees before God, and I need to repent and turn from my wicked ways, and I need help with that. That might be what submission would look like in a season. But then not the addictive season like we're talking about here. Where it doesn't have to do with sin. And it's only if we submit those principles nonetheless. Pray that they've been for your life. It depends on the season that God has placed you in. Maybe work has changed. You know what? Let's, let, let me give you a few examples. The first one, let me, let me come at it from a church perspective. It's really fun to see the, the easy examples for me to come up with, obviously, at this point. Um, I'm about to get frosty. Curtis, you're lucky we have, you're lucky we have this distance. When I get dry mouth and I get excited, frost just spews out. And you just see, it's like, it's going to be a white Christmas Sunday in here, man. Man, you, don't, you, you do not need a snow machine. <laughs> But let me give you those examples. All right, so church, let, let, let's, let's have some fun. I'm not going to give you, uh, it's a what if. Let's pretend I'm giving you an announcement. Let me act it out. Hey, church, good morning. Great Sunday to be together. I have exciting news for you. I have exciting news. And, and, and listen, I grew up in the church, and this is especially exciting for me. Guess what? We're no longer having church on Sundays. We're going to have church on Saturday night. Let me stop there. I'm role-playing, and I bet a lot of you just got really uncomfortable. You'd be like, Saturday night. Maybe some of you like the idea, depending on the season, because of Sunday football and all that. But what did you just say, Pastor? We're changing church to Saturday nights? No, I, I got my Saturday, and I got my Sunday. Sunday is church day. Saturday is whatever day. I, I don't know. But then I was going and tell you, listen, I know that's the way that we grew up, but the masses, and this is, this is actually true, in a, and again, we're not doing this. We're not. We might in the future one day add a service on a Saturday night if we grow and all that, but here's what's true, and a lot of church plants have done this in different cities depending on the, the culture and the age category based on the per capita of the area. They do churches on Saturday nights. Why? Because they're likely to reach so many more people. Yes, the traditional church people that are used to Sundays might not like it, but now they're reaching so many more. Not saying we're doing that. I don't know if that would work for us. The point is, even in that scenario, the step would be taken. As great as Sunday is, Sunday has no right to sharing the gospel in people's lives. It might mean that we who are used to Sundays might need to sacrifice but aren't we called to do that? And again, that's, that's just a, a fun little illustration. That is not happening um, yet. Who knows? I have no idea. But let's, let's pick on something a little bit more practical for us in everyday life. That isn't just a once-a-week church service thing. Let me talk about work. It would be easy based on what I just read, Paul saying, I've become all things to all men, to then talk about like drinking or, or drugs or anything like that. That's, that's an easy hot topic button that we could talk about in that context i want to talk about work and let me present work in a very positive light because again we're talking about principles that i want you to understand whatever they are they're good they're positive they're faith building they're good value work something we were created by god to do right all the way back in genesis in the beginning of scripture god created adam and eve to labor it wasn't a part of their fallen nature because of sin. It was a part of God's divine 
plan as he designed us. He intended us for it. It's only our work became extremely toilsome because of sin, but it didn't remove our divine creation and, and design to work. So that, that's a part of who we are. So if you don't like work, yeah, there's probably some reality, and you can look at it, but if you are just utterly lazy and don't like to work, that's something you've got to rectify with God because God intended us to work. And we all probably go through that. I've gone through that. There was a season of life where it's like, man, this is miserable, and I had to confront that reality that God created you to do this work. Just shut your mouth and do it and ask him for help if it becomes toilsome because of sin in the world. Anyways, so we're created to work. And say you really take that to heart and you say, you know what? I I have a season of life in my job, in my workplace, where I can really, really bring glory to God. We ought to always bring glory to God in all that we do. But say you have a situation in work. Let's play this scenario out Um, because my wife just went through this and is going through this. Um, But say whatever department you work in, whatever job you have, maybe there's a few people in that department that help carry and manage the load. But then somebody quits in that department or is laid off. And now there wasn't a good plan in place to help with alleviating some of that responsibility. And now your bosses, those under you, your peers in the workplace, everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off. How are we going to meet deadlines? How are we going to do this? We don't even know how to do what he or she did, left us, and, and you're left trying to figure it all out. But you really step up, and you're a Christian, and you say, man, th- this is honestly a great opportunity for, for me to grant a little, get a little bit of brownie points because I'll, I'll go the extra mile. There's nothing wrong with that. But then really also your, your faith kicks in and you say, I want to be a good witness. And while all of my other coworkers are complaining and saying, man, they're giving us all this extra work and I can't believe they do this to us and why would they leave us hanging and they're mad at everybody else and they're gossiping and they're complaining, you step up and you say, you know what? We got a job to do. Let's get it done. Let's work hard. Let's figure it out. That's a great representation of Jesus without getting up there and just saying, hey, yeah, you know, Jesus says and Jesus says and Jesus says. It's a great way to represent Christ, having a good attitude, being humble, being meek, being gracious, being merciful. You're being Jesus as he wants you to be in that situation. And you do that. And you start realizing, man, this is good, but it's requiring a lot extra from me. Now, let's say that in that situation you're married. And now your spouse is experiencing the lack of intimacy because you've been giving more than, you've been giving beyond 100%. Impossible, but you know what I'm saying. At work, you're staying late, you're bringing work home with you. And it's all in light of you have that conversation with your spouse and say, listen, I know this is hard right now, but I have a real opportunity here. Not just to help us, not just maybe to help earn some brownie points for a promotion, but I really feel God wants me to do that. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. There are, there's no balance in life. And I just say that we always want to try to find balance. There's no such thing as balance. There's ebbs and flows. And you need to know how to respond in those seasons. You do need to try to seek to have some sort of semblance in your life. But there are seasons, my wife and I understand this, and we talk about this openly, where there are times where ministry is going to take precedence. Not because I love it more, but because it's just we have a lot of events and we're going to have a lot of Saturdays that are consuming us and we're not going to have a lot of time for each other. But then I need to recognize when that's over, I better leave that and I better now give 100% to my wife. That, that's the balance. And a lot of you might not agree with that. You know, to each his own. I'm just giving you a little bit of what I've been taught and now I've seen as true in life. And when it comes
into this work situation to find a glorified God, but now it's affecting your, your relationships, your health, your pain to be spouse or the person that you're trying to start a relationship with. And you're trying to justify it and you have good intent, but it's creating problems. Let's say you have a kid or you have kids. What are your kids seeing? In your mind, I'm showing them hard work. I'm showing them that this is what it takes to be willing to get tough in a season. That's good. That is true. But what are you also showing them? No matter what your kid or kids are going to see, work is more important than the way mommy loves daddy or daddy loves mommy. Work is more important. Work is more important than mommy and daddy spending time with me. Work is more important. I don't, I don't care how you try to rationalize it in your mind. You might be right. You might tell yourself, oh, my kids don't understand when they grow up. No, they won't. I have so many friends, so many friends that I get mad about because I want them to be mature and say, listen, you're an adult. You can understand now. It doesn't change the fact that they carry baggage their entire lives and they're resentful. It makes me mad. I wish they weren't. But it's the reality. As children, we are also malleable. So to the parents, recognize that's the damage that you're doing, but you're all doing it with, with trying to maintain the integrity of that value that not only is this helping my family, I'm bringing glory to God. I'm showing the rest of the workplace, but at what cost? I believe without question that God would give you that opportunity for a season. And he says, I want you to do it. And I want you to be clear with your family that it might get tough for a little while with, with the time at home. And I might miss a few things. And, and again, that, I'm not saying that that's what you have to do, but I'm saying it's a what-if scenario. And I think that there can be a time where God wants you to step into that season of ministry and do that. But then does that become your identity? When you say, man, look at all of what I accomplished. And now it feels good. And now it rules you. And now you're walking around under a false pretense of godliness and righteousness. When the rest of your family is so far away, turned off from God. That you've walked around with the blinder of saying, you know what, no, I'm serving God, and I'm showing them, no, no, you haven't represented Christ well. You've allowed your principles to now serve you rather than serve God. If, if it's not causing you to be an effective witness to everyone in any season that you're in, it's not of God, it's of you. And it might have been great for a time, need to be willing to put it under a microscope and say, God, you want this to be perfect every time. All things to all men, so that by all means necessary. That was a part of the influence of a value that I had as a youth pastor. That is honestly still a value today, but I don't have it on tape or anything. But I'll give you my, my mission that I prayed about, that I, I talked about with my leadership team as a youth pastor. I said, listen, here's what I feel God is telling us we need to be all about as a youth ministry. And it was, it was as a little statement, a mission statement, a purpose statement, to do whatever it takes to point students to Jesus. A mixture of John the Baptist, who was always saying, don't look at me. I'm with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't, don't, I, I, am, I, am, I am his representative, so don't get all caught up with me. Pointing to Jesus. But then the do whatever it takes is right from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul, who is a man of principle, who can be very stubborn, who is very intellectual, Right there in chapter 9 says, but I'm willing to become whatever I need to be. As much as I'm a man of principle in this area, if it means I set this aside for a season or permanently, I will do it. If it means that God's gospel will go forward on the 
deliberate hypocrites. So ultimately, again, this is necessary and important because a mature Christian is not a slave to his or her temptations. Do not forget that. So again, as you're thinking, as you go home and you evaluate, what do I hold dear? Don't, Don't throw it all away. Maybe even make a list. I like to do this. I like to read my Bible here. I like to practice this journaling habit. I, I like to talk about God with my kids and my family at the gym. All, all those great things. Or I like to do this at work. Maybe make a list. And don't throw any of it away until you really evaluate and say, you know, that, that work when our kids were toddlers. I don't want to work when they were teenagers. Because I really liked it, but it doesn't work anymore. You know, my spouse and I, we, we really connected. We grew closer together as God wants us to, and we felt closer to God, and we were at our high point. And I, I noticed that that's what we were doing, and we're still doing that, and now we're always at each other's throats. So maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we need to reevaluate that. Maybe we need to tweak it, or maybe, you know, we need to try something new because God wants something new for us. You know, as a church, this is something we always need to ask ourselves. We, in this season, man, we did this, 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 and this, and it was great. And on paper, it's still great but it's not bearing fruit. So maybe, you know what? Maybe we set that aside for now. You see how this applies to every portion of your life. Every portion of your life. And that's what Paul is teaching Timothy in this moment that Timothy is never going to forget because of the fiscal implications of this very difficult lesson. Now, I'm going to finish this section and speed through the rest of it. Um, I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying about this. I am not saying, now let's, let's use drinking as an example. You might be sitting here and just what people like to do with that 1 Corinthians 9 passage or even this passage from Acts where Timothy calls against it, but he, he had Timothy circumcised. So you know what? Maybe there are things that I should do that were, you know, people were against in the church that the Bible talks against, but it's going to help me be effective in my witness. Take drinking, for an example. This has been a big, big, big argument in the church, but especially with a lot of friends growing up, especially kids who grew up in the church, seem to get this chip on their shoulder. Like, I grew up in the church, and if the drinking wasn't a thing in the church, and they read a few scriptures, especially those that went to Bible school, and all of a sudden they're experts, and they know everything better than everybody. And they say, oh, I can drink. Don't make anyone drink. Don't make anyone drink. And, and then a part of the justification is, but look, it's a very big social practice and what does it look like if i go out with friends and i don't take a beer i don't take a wine man that's going to make the gospel so much less appropriate and they're not going to want to hear it because i won't take a drink i've heard that argument all the time listen if you drink i am not about to get into a sermon or even a point on should you or shouldn't you drink within the context of what we're talking about here here's what i want to say if the bible clearly says don't do it you can't then go and do it all in the name of being more culturally relevant. Again, I don't want to talk about drinking, but let's say drunkenness. Bible's clear about getting drunk. Clear about it. And you say, yeah, but every once in a while, I have a little bit too far with my friends. God understands and ultimately helps me with my witness. I don't know how you can work that in, but you work that in. No, you can't pick and choose and say, I believe this, but I don't believe, but, but God understands. It's hell. It's, it's, it's a necessary evil. No. God is light in whom there is no darkness. If the Bible clearly says it, you can't do it. So I'm not making a message on 
should or shouldn't drink. You get what I'm saying, right? Don't twist scripture to fit another narrative that you think is helping further the gospel, but really it's just it's giving you what you want in life, all right? So careful with that. Now, finally, just about this, here's, here's a really good practice that I see. If you're watching online, listen up, and here, listen up. This is something that I don't think Luke communicates, but I'm going to take based on the practice that we see in Scripture that I think is a part of the discipleship process. What we see so far is that there are three necessary relationships that we all need in our lives. There's a lot more, but let me just say three. And I, I heard this from another minister, and I think it's so important. You need three people in your life, non-negotiable. I don't care how old, young, gendered, preferences, likes, principles, successful, non-successful, wherever you're at in life. Non-negotiable, three relationships you need. Number one, you need a Paul. And within this context, Paul is the mentor in your life. I don't care how old you are. You need mentorship. If you don't have somebody investing in you from a, hey, listen up. I know you've been doing this, but let me give you a different direction. You need a mentor. You don't need a lot of mentors. You can have a lot of mentors, but you need one. Timothy had that in Paul. He needed that. They were very alike. They were like-minded. Paul describes that relationship with Timothy in Galatians. I can't even begin to say the Greek word, but it has to do with a like-mindedness. In other words, Paul's saying, Timothy and I, we got each other. Mark and me didn't, and, uh, and eventually Barnabas and me didn't, even though we did a lot of work together, but Timothy and me, we got it. And Timothy was referred to as Paul's spiritual son. He wrote a letter, two letters to Timothy, encouraging them to stay, especially the first time. There, there's serious relationship. Paul was a mentor to Timothy, and relationships are so here. We all need that. Do not be prideful to think that you don't want God to bless you. We all look at how old you are. And I'm not saying it's, it's hard to find a good mentor. It might not happen overnight. You need to be open to that. Maybe there are going to be seasons where that mentor isn't somebody that you know really well, but you have an outlet and a venue to receive that mentorship. You need it. That person is going to really help keep you accountable. The second relationship that we all need that I see is a Barnabas relationship, where, where Barnabas really was an encourager. He went around to all the churches and encouraged. Paul did it too, but Barnabas is the guy who was really known as the son of encouragement, the man who sa- went on and said, hey, keep it up. Keep on keeping on. I know you're faltering. I know life is getting tough, but you got this. God is going to strengthen and sustain you through it. I know life is tough. That, that really good friend, maybe they can help keep you accountable, but they're not going to have the voice of a mentor in your life that you submit to. Let's be honest. It's hard to submit to some of your closest friends. I'm not saying that they still shouldn't. We can't call each other out and keep each other accountable, but really that encourager who's by your side, who will bear your burden. And the final step, because those both are very serving things, the final step is we all need a Timothy. Who are you investing in? Am I going to dig in and let them keep the majority of that rock? I mean, even me, it's easy for me to say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a call to many people. Uh, that's just a privilege that I get as a pastor, but who am I going out of my way regularly to invest in the best I can, as well as I can, depending on the season that I'm in? And, and, and understand, that's discipleship. And that's what we are called to do. It's not just about proclaiming the word and leaving. But man, if you're going to come alongside of in a season, not just be encouraged and be a Barnabas too, but you're going to come and be a friend who's my friend. And that's a hard thing. You can't force that. It's one of the hardest things that I, I, I was taught early on that I think is true. 
and then mentally you really can't come to a point. You can, but usually as an effective, you don't say, hey, I'm going to teach you a thing or two. Usually that doesn't work. That's where your responsibility as seeking to be a mentor, to be a Paul, is not, man, who am I? You can look, but ultimately it's, you need them to come to you. And when they come to you, are you are willing? That's where it gets hard because then the sacrifice comes in to say, wait a second, I'm getting better at this. I'm not just trying to save my own skin. My wee skirt is not that big enough. And it's good spiritual advice. It's a good mentor is willing to do that. A rabbi in traditional times and still in a lot of days in ancient and current and certain Asian cultures, certain monks and Buddhist practices bring their students them. They pay for them. They care for them. They give them living and clothes. I'm not saying you do that. I'm just saying it's a long-standing cultural tradition that the principles are important. So the three necessary relationships that we need is a mentor, an encourager, and a mentee. That's what I really see here. Not as Luke trying to teach us, but it's still nonetheless something to be taught. All right. Shotgun time. We're going through this real quick. The rest of chapter 16. Um, verses 16 to 10, let me read for you. Paul's got Timothy. He's got Silas. Paul, oh, he's going to have Silas. Paul and his companions traveled to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. Listen, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, it's interesting, the first time we see the plural right here, we, this is the author inserting himself for the first time into the scriptures, Luke. Luke joins the journey on Paul's second missionary journey as a doctor. Likely because, I'll get to this in a second, Paul might have had a, a chronic ailment. And Luke, a convert who was a Greek, not to Christianity, is a well-known doctor, comes along probably for very practical reasons. Paul needs a, phys a physician, a doctor to help him. Don't know that for sure, but it's likely. Um, easy to piece together. Uh, we, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right. Uh, guys, can you put that picture up on the screen for me? Um, I know it's hard for you to see this from where you're at, but this is a great picture. And if you look online, you can find this. Your Bible probably has pictures in there. And most Bibles have Paul's three missionary journeys, where you get to see. Pastor Chase showed a few weeks ago the first missionary journey. This is the second missionary journey. And I'm going to try to explain it to you. I know you can't read it. Right here is Antioch. This is where Paul and Barnabas returned after their first missionary journey. And they start debating. And then the church in Jerusalem sends letters that now Paul is on his second missionary journey distributing to encourage the brothers to know how to live their faith, what things they don't need to worry about. And Paul, based on what he said in 15 to Barnabas, wants to go back and revisit some of the churches that they went to on the first missionary journey to encourage them and to give this letter. And so that's what they do. They set out, minus Barnabas, Timothy, Silas, maybe a few others, Luke, and they go from Antioch, Tarsus, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch and Pisidia, that's Antioch Minor, Antioch number two. They go back to the churches that they were in, as we just read, and they encourage them and distribute the letter. But then Paul says, yeah, but we got more work to do. We can't just go and keep circulating. we got to keep bringing the gospel to unreached places. It's a missionary journey. So from their final destination in their, not, not their final, but the last one that they had already visited, Antioch and Pisidia, Paul says, 
let's go into Asia. This is not modern Asia. This is Asia Minor as we would understand it today. And Paul says, let's share the gospel with the folks in these towns. Obviously, Ephesus is down there. You have Colossae, the book of the Colossians, uh, and, and all of these other places. Paul wants to go there. The Spirit of God says no. He says, okay. Can't go south. We already came from the east. Let's go north. And he wants to go up to Bithynia up there in Pontus. Spirit of God says no. All right. Can't go south. Can't go north. Not going back. Let's go west. They continue west. And Paul stops in Troas. Up here, you see right here on the border in a port town. And he reaches a body of water. And I think, again, I'm just speculating here. But I can imagine Paul... um, really knowing what to do next i mean listen has anybody ever said to me man how what's god speaking to you in this season of life as a pastor i always feel compelled to have a really good response to that answer can i tell you a lot of times it's like i don't know i got nothing you know i'm just trucking along like you trying to be faithful but i haven't had any like divine encounter i don't know that that happened but i can almost imagine and speculate Paul's standing on a body of water in Troas, looking out at the vast expanse, knowing there's unreached territory, and maybe he's got this idea of, yeah, we're going to go there. Or maybe he really had his heart set on Asia Minor, and he had a plan. And he said, we're going to go and we're going to reach those unreached people groups. It's the next most obvious choice because there's a lot of cities there. We can go past Troas and into the, the region of Macedonia later. Let's go to Asia Minor. Spirit of God, no. Nope. Um, All right, well, it makes sense, again, that we don't keep going west. We got a whole lot of people up north, so God, you want us to go north? No. Not going there. So, keep keep walking. Keep walking. Paul goes there. Okay, we can't walk anymore to Troas. Today, it's a city of ruins. There's nothing there. Nothing there. It's, It's a place that nobody visits. Went to Troas. And Paul's standing there, and he's got this vast expanse of water, and he looks out, and he says, Literally, I can speculate. Paul's like, what now? I've walked as far as I can walk. What do you want me to do now, God? He gets on the boat and goes to Macedonia. And then, again, in that picture, now he goes to Neapolis and Philippi, which is where I'm going to really just paraphrase the scripture. And that's where the church in, uh, that we get the letter to the Philippians is written. He goes down and he eventually is going to make his way to Rome. This is Europe. And the, the region, this, this whole continent had never heard the gospel before. This could circulate amongst other people. And Paul, in his third missionary journey, is going to come back here. And he's going to go into Bithynia. He's going to go to all of these places. He's went to a little bit of Galatia up here, but again, not Bithynia. So he, he's going to get an opportunity. But here's the point that I want to make to you. Um, well, let me, let me read the scripture to you. Proverbs 16.9. You all know this one pretty well once I read it. In their hearts, humans plan their course and that's important because what failing to plan is what planning to fail always have a plan nothing wrong with it we should have a plan but here's the deal in their hearts humans plan their course but the lord establishes their steps so so here's the point it's really simple let me show it to you plans change purpose doesn't see i, I love 
I love just that map because it gives you a picture of Paul had a plan. I can imagine he had a plan. For whatever reason, he couldn't go to, to Asia Minor or Bithynia. Maybe he was sick because he says that again in Galatians. He talks about, man, how the Galatians wanted to give him his eyes. And that some have interpreted as when Paul had some issues with his optical nerves and maybe had some goo and all that and couldn't see well. So he had to bring Luke. Maybe he got sick. Maybe it was a supernatural, like the spirit stopping him in steps, like Daniel in the lion's den, God shutting the mouth. And God's like, no, you're not going to take another step in that direction. I don't, we don't know why. We really don't. But I can imagine Paul had a plan. And he wanted to go to Asia and then Bithynia. And God says no. But that no is really a yes. He takes a third missionary journey. He then goes to those places that he wanted to go to initially. So you might be in a season of life where you think, I need to do this now. This is what God wants me to do right now. And God is saying no. You need to understand that if it's a closed door, very likely it's because God has closed it. No is what? Still an option. And we don't like that. But we need to be willing to once again humble ourselves to God to recognize <laughs> it might not be my plan, but he directs my steps. Literally for Paul, he's directing my steps. So God wants you to go to Europe. You can even go far before you go into the deep expanse of the rest of Asia Minor. He'll take care of that other stuff. God has other options. We need to see how God's working in Scripture. Um, all right, now, I'm going to paraphrase for you the rest of chapter 16. I've got five minutes. I'm, I'm done at 12. No question. No question. Right here, verse 11, Paul then from Troas sails to Neapolis, makes his way to eventually the city of Philippi, and this is where we have the famous story of Lydia. And Lydia was the woman who dealt with the dealer in purple cloth. Um, she was technically not a believer. She was a Gentile. And Paul and his companions go down by the river, and they see a group of ladies there. Lydia is one of them, and maybe her employees. And they're by the river preparing wood. I'm not going to go into all the historical detail of what that looked like for you. They encounter them. And what I love about that scripture when you read it is that it says, The Lord opened or changed Lydia's heart. The Lord opened and changed Lydia's heart. Again, I, I talked about that a few weeks ago before I got sick. Or no, I talked about it with Pastor Jake before I got sick. Um, God can only change the heart of people. You can't. You proclaim the gospel. You've got to understand when it's time to move on. You proclaim it, and it's up to them and God if they're going to receive it. Lydia's heart's open, and they're converted. I guess they have to convince them to come into their house. Whatever that means, we don't know. Because if they were ladies, I doubt it, because Paul was really not a carer, again, if people look down on other people for certain reasons. So probably was unlikely, but for some reason, he had to convince them. Maybe they wanted to avoid the appearance of evil, and you got a bunch of dudes going in the house with a bunch of women. I don't know. <laughs> People's minds could have wandered. But he ends up going with his companions. Lydia houses them. And then you go on in chapter 16. It says, one day, Paul and his companions were looking for a place to stay. And they were in the marketplace, and a slave girl who's demon-possessed comes and provokes them day after day after day, provoking them. 
taunting them, knowing that these are men of God, and this demon see this girl is provoking them. Finally, Paul gets so fed up, he turns and he looks at the girl and he addresses the demon directly. And he says, get out, get away from me in Jesus' name. So dresses it, casts the demon out, and goes on. But unfortunately, this girl was a major source of income because it says she was a foreteller. She was able to tell people of a psychic, as we would understand it in modern day, which, by the way, if you like to go to psychics and tarot cards and all that, do not do it. It is evil. It is demonic. It's not that you're going to go to hell and die and all that, but you're opening yourself up for things you don't want to. So anyway, this girl was a major source of income. Her bosses, her employers realized, demon's gone. No more fortune telling. We don't have a source of income from this girl. We're going to go and we're going to collect. And they go and they get Paul and Silas in Thuriabad. And they go to the magistrates there. There were two magistrates at the time in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony. And they were the leaders and they had authority. And they lied to the authorities and said, hey, they're, they're trying to contradict our Roman customs, they said. They just got fed up with a girl heckling them and said, in Jesus' name, get out. No, it says literally they were upset because they lost their means of income, their money. So they lie. Paul and Silas are falsely imprisoned. Now, the big thing that you see here that it's Luke clearly reports is that they were both Roman citizens. And they had a lot of rights as Roman citizens where they needed to go through due trial. Instead of going through due trial, the magistrates refuse to give them due trial. They don't even follow their own laws and customs. And they beat them. They flog them severely, it says, and then imprison them in such a way that we'll just say is incredibly inhumane and uncomfortable. So two Roman citizens who should have been exempt from all of this, and all it would have taken was a quick, hey, here, here's my Roman citizenship card. Here it is. They don't. There's a lot of speculation as to why that is, but they don't do it. They find themselves in prison, and what do they do? I think a lot of you know this. What do they do? They sing and pray. They jump to God. I would not be doing that. I'll tell you that right now. I would not be doing that. Anyway, they're singing, they're praising. A violent earthquake shakes the prison doors, and they all fly open. Not just Paul and Silas, but every prisoner in there. And it says the ward, the guard that was there, gets so fearful he wakes up from the from his sleep he gets the light and he looks and all the doors are open and he immediately knows what this means for him prisoners are going to escape which means i'm going to be put to death roman law i'm going to be put to death because i did not keep my charges where they belong they are now going to escape he pulls out his sword to literally fall on it to impale himself and paul quickly cries out wait 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 don't don't fall on your sword don't do it look Every prisoner is still here. How on earth, however many prisoners were there, how on earth Paul and Silas convinced all the other prisoners to stay in their jail cells? I have no idea. But he does. And it says the, the, the soldier came on his knees, fell on his knees, trembling, trembling, and cries out to them, what must I do to be saved? And, and when I first read that, I thought, okay, this, this is talking literally. Like, how do I do save my neck? He's not. The jailer in this moment is so overwhelmed by the fact that something divinely supernatural is happening. None of this makes sense. 
how did the prison doors open? That earthquake, that came. Why are all of the prisoners still staying here? Those guys that I know did not belong in prison were just singing with joyful praises to their God. Something divine is happening. The trembling, really, Luke is trying to help us understand. It's not about he's afraid because he's going to be killed for not doing his job. He is so overwhelmed by the supernatural activity that has taken place this night in his mind. circumcised we drag a demon we just believe in jesus and he and all the household would be saved because immediately he and his household were baptized they were saved they believed they were baptized and it said the the one verse that i want to read to you if you guys can throw it up it is verse 34 says the jailer brought them to his house and set a meal before them and here's the big part he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So based on just that big, large summary of all of that, here's what I really uh, kind of want to ask myself and ask ourselves rhetorically. First, the fact that Paul and Silas are singing joyfully as they are falsely imprisoned and persecuted, and they've been beaten severely. And yet they are joyful and thankful to God as they're in prison. That, that's note number one of like, huh, interesting. I need to take note as to why that happened. Why are Paul and Silas in the midst of unjust adversity, not a new topic in Acts, not a new topic in the New Testament, they are joyous when everything is going against them unjustly? First question. He did almost lose his life. If one prisoner would have escaped, one prisoner would have escaped. I don't care what his track record was. He didn't do his job. That's what he said. Second, this man sits there enjoying a meal with guys that should be in prison right now. So technically they did leave. And he's filled with joy. How can we, today and throughout our lives, be filled with joy when nothing might be going our way, when our world is crumbling all around us, when we feel that we have made mistakes that are irreparable, that, that just we could not piece back together? That joy is Jesus. And I know you know that. Maybe you don't know that wherever you're at in all this. I, 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 I'm going to say it again. That joy is found in Jesus. That's why we celebrate his life in this season. When Easter comes, we celebrate the fact and thank him and show honor to his name because he died for us. But what about the life that he lived? Because if it wasn't for the perfect sinless life that he lived and setting aside his divinity and coming as a babe in a manger, there would be no joy for Paul and Silas. They would have probably instantly flashed that Roman citizenship card. I, I think the reason that they didn't, as some of you have learned before, Paul was keeping that in his back pocket because he could hold it against the magistrates. You read the rest of the chapter. He says the magistrates find out they become fearful and they want to send him away quietly. And Paul says, uh-uh, I want a public apology. I have learned and agree with the notion that 
Paul wanted to set Lydia and the converts in the new church at Philippi up for success because he wanted them to know, hey, I'm, we're, Christians are growing here. So you better not treat them the way that you treated me or I'm going to go to your higher ups and let them know how you treated two Roman citizens. That all was because of the confidence they had in Jesus, the hope that they had in Jesus, the soldier and his family who were converted. That was because of hope in Jesus. Would you stand with me on your feet today? Man, I, I, I am thankful to Jesus. While this is one of many Christmases that I've experienced in my life and hopefully one of many more that I'll be blessed to experience, I'm thankful to God that he's filled my life with a fresh joy, a fresh anticipation that no matter what I have to face, there's always hope in Jesus. So let me close in prayer for us today. And my desire is that you as well would be restored or rejuvenated or, or just reaffirmed with that joy that is found in Christ. Let it be a, a, a new gift, the likes of which you've experienced before but it would be something that would be like a kid on Christmas Day that you're unwrapping for the first time all over again with such anticipation and the joy of Jesus. That's my prayer today. My prayer today is that we would look to your word. We would dwell on it. We would allow ourselves to marinate in it, that it would, it would find its way into every cavern, every crevice, every thought, every reality of who we are and we would be filled with joy and new success because Jesus you lived the life that we could never and you freely gave us that which you earned for us Lord if we walk out of here today I pray that we would not walk out of here without having alleviated the burdens that have been on our backs maybe for years about values that worked at one point that we are just exhausted to maintain at this point in our lives, thinking that it's what keeps us holy. Lord, I pray that that would be thrown down before your feet, cast away, and we would fix our hope and our joy on you, saying it's not, it's not about that value or that principle. It might have been good for a time, but there's a new season of, of joy and work that you have for us, and we walk in that. I thank you. Lord, I thank you for those that are here that are healthy. God, with all of the upspike of, of COVID and the new variant, I pray, Jesus, that you would protect bodies, protect lungs. Jesus, protect hearts. Father, would you right now supernaturally keep everyone here, keep our church family those that trust in you, that hope in you, that believe in you, divinely covered, so that even if they unknowingly come into contact with COVID, it would be repelled from them supernaturally. God, I pray you can do it. You've done amazing things before. You can do amazing things today. So Lord, we trust you. Our hope is in you. Heal bodies, protect us, be with us until we gather together again in the new year. And in Jesus' mighty name, the people of God said, amen, amen, amen. God